0: Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 11 as we begin this absolutely incredible journey through a Pauline epistle that has a lot of similarities to the two we just studied, but it's distinct as well at the same time. Now, some see, and there are even commentators that are, commentaries rather, that are labeled on their covers, see this uh, as the epistle of joy. And uh, there's certainly joy mentioned uh, some 16 times throughout the four chapters and others make mention of the fact that this is the most affectionate letter to churches that Paul wrote. And I would agree with that. Now the city of Philippi was established in 356 BC by a guy named Philip of Macedon. He was a father to Alexander the Great. And obviously, like many world leaders, uh, he named the city after himself, Philippi. Now, It was interesting that this city, like all cities of antiquity, would come under the dominion of various empires, the Greek Empire obviously being uh, clear under Philip and Alexander. And then later in 42 BC, it became a Roman colony. Now, it was distinct from the great cities of that era, like Ephesus, a major seaport. It wasn't a metropolis, if you will. It was a small town, and it was numbering of about Ten thousand people at the max. Yet it lay in close proximity to the gold mines of the Pangean Mountains or Pangius Mountains. Which obviously, if there's gold in them, there are hills. It's going to be important to people in control. And indeed, the Roman Empire wanted to make sure that this little town of Philippi enjoyed colony status. Now, it's of particular interest that this letter is clearly an unbridled reflection of Paul's love for this little church in this little town. And the reason I think that's important to start with is because Paul's visit to Philippi wasn't exactly a pleasurable time. Now in Acts 16, 6 to 12, we're told when they, the missionary team, Paul uh, obviously leading the way, went through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they traveled into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them, or they tried to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we, Luke adding himself to the entourage, sought to go to Macedonia concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, pay attention to that particular phrase. They understood through the vision Paul had that God was leading them to Macedonia to preach the gospel. Now, there's a particular city in Macedonia that obviously comes to mind. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to what? Philippi, which is the foremost city uh, of that part of Macedonia because it was a colony and we stayed there for some days. Now, in Philippi, Paul met his beloved friend Lydia, a seller of purple, a purple dye, that uh, purple being the color of royalty. It was the color of the elite that they would dye their fabrics in and furnishings as well. It was in Lydia's house that the Philippian church first met. And it was in Philippi where Paul was being troubled by a young slave girl who had the spirit of divination. She was possessed by a demon. And she constantly followed Paul and Silas everywhere they went, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God. Well, Paul got annoyed with this, even though it was true what she was declaring. And he turned to her at one point in time, and he cast the spirit out of her. Well, that greatly annoyed her owners or masters. And they had Paul and Silas arrested, brought them before the local magistrates. They accused them of troubling the city, and Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, and then their feet put in stocks, and they were to stay overnight in prison. Now, at midnight in Philippi, Paul and Silas with bloody backs and bound feet, were doing what? They were singing hymns. They were praising the Lord. Now, let me pause here, because this is going to be part of our time together this morning. Did they not understand that God had led them to Philippi? Paul had a vision, and they understood they were supposed to go preach there. What happened when they got there? Paul cast a demon out of a girl, and of course the city said, that's awesome, thank you for doing these things. Now, what they do? They beat their backs, put them in stocks. And the interesting thing, I think, about this that we need to remember, first of all, is that Paul and Silas, with bloody backs and bound feet, were singing hymns to the Lord. And I think the Lord joined in on the chorus and provided the percussion because he shook that place and all of the chains fell off of the prisoners. Now, being a Roman colony... The jailer in the Philippian jail knew that the death penalty awaited him because that was the consequence for letting any Roman prisoner escape. And therefore, he was about to fall on his sword, and then this happened. In Acts 16, 28-34, Paul called with a loud voice to the jailer, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. In other words, he's telling the jailer, nobody has escaped, we're all here. Then he, the jailer, called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, that doesn't mean that because the jailer got saved, the household was saved. It just means Paul was saying, you know what? Your household is going to get saved. And that was a revelation too. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Now, look at the experience Paul has that the Lord led him to. He does something wonderful for a girl who was being exploited, and the city turned on him. What happened? Did right prevail? Well, ultimately, of course it did. Were there stripes involved on their backs first? Stocks on their feet first? And yet, Paul writes this, which the commentators again describe as his most affectionate letter with a Roman guard chained to each arm. And he is talking about this particular church in this particular city. And he says to them, with all of this negative history, with all of this illegal activity, with all of the betrayal in a sense, and the spiritual activity from the demonic realm, Paul says to this city, to this church, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He's going to say to them, I have you in my heart. I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And then he says, and I pray for you. And as I studied, knowing we're going through this magnificent book. My mind obviously began to fill with the information and data that I was studying, but I was also remembering where this was going to take us spiritually. I couldn't help but think many of you, I'm sure, have driven through Northern California and through the Redwoods and gone down the Avenue of the Giants and seen these massive trees that are so big and their branches so long that they don't even allow the sun to hit the road beneath. And we're going to travel through four chapters monuments in Scripture in our journey through Ephesians. It's going to start right away in verse 6, where we'll be reminded that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Next, we're going to run across a monument that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then we're going to be exhorted to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And we'll be told let this mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus, we're reminded someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And Paul said, you know, all the stuff I've gained, I count them as loss for the cause of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to hit chapter 3. We're going to find that someday these lowly bodies are going to be transformed into glorious bodies like that of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're citizens of heaven. And because we're citizens of heaven, we're going to be exhorted to stand fast in the Lord. And as we stand fast in the Lord, we are to be anxious for nothing. And we are to meditate on the true and the pure and the lovely and things of good report. And we're also told that we can do all things through Christ who will strengthen us And our God will supply all of our needs according to His riches in glory through Christ Jesus. We are headed through the avenue of the giants. And thinking about all these things, thinking about where we're going, I have to say the one thing that I could not get away from in this letter for our initial time together is how can we become someone that looks back on life's negatives and still have joy? How can we become someone who can write love letters from chains? How do we get to this type of perception of life and this reality that Paul experienced? And I believe that establishing this is going to be essential for us understanding the rest of our journey. Through this text that is the favorite of the Pauline epistles to many commentators and this avenue of giants that is the book of Philippians and thus our opening subject, if you will, and message title has to be Becoming Overcomers. How do we become overcomers? And we have to remember that all of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were given a promise to those who overcome. Ephesus had lost its first love and the overcomer was promised to eat of the tree of life. Smyrna was heavily persecuted, and the overcomer was promised not to be hurt by the second death. Pergamus, a church in deep compromise, was told that the overcomer will be given some of the hidden manna to eat. The corrupt church at Thyatira was told that the overcomer will be given power over the nations. The dead church at Sardis was told the overcomer would be clothed in white garments. The loving church at Philadelphia was promised that the overcomer would be a pillar in the temple of the house of God. And the lukewarm church of the Laodiceans was told the overcomer would sit on the throne with Jesus just as he sits on his father's throne with him. Beautiful promises. Want to be an overcomer? Now, three things we need to mention about these seven letters. And the first is this there are always things to overcome, no matter how things are going overall. Think about the church at Smyrna in Philadelphia. The Lord had no word of condemnation to them, yet there were still things that had to be overcome in these two churches. Secondly, the promise to the overcomer is personal and not corporate or collective. And that means that every church is going to have overcomers in it and some who do not. My prayer is that CCT is 100% overcomers. I, I was hoping there'd be more enthusiasm than that. And listen, thirdly, here's what's important, I think, especially for us today, that no matter what is going on around us, no matter the circumstance, whether things are going well or poorly, we can and should be overcomers. We should be people who can write love letters in chains. We should be people who can look back on the injustices that we have experienced, the betrayals that have come our way, And the pandemics that have harmed us and robbed us in life and still look at life with joy. Because after all, we're going to heaven. Jesus is coming to get us soon, I believe. Who's ready to learn how to become an overcomer? Well, stand and read with me, please, from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of all of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, and that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And Lord, again, we're grateful for our recent journeys, in particular through Galatians, reminding us that there is no other gospel. We thank you for the structure we found for the church and life in our time through Ephesians. And we thank you now, Lord, for this avenue of the giants that we're going to pass through and see so many wonderful monuments of Scripture. But we thank you, Lord, even for these introductory statements of Paul, and all that we can learn from them about being overcomers in such a time as this. Equip us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I mentioned somewhat contradictorily, That Philippians is similar and distinct from other Pauline epistles. It is similar in that it has the customary Hellenistic opening or opening salutation. The authors introduce, the recipients are identified, and a blessing of prayer or prayer is offered for them. And what is distinct is how Paul identifies himself in his opening declaration. He calls he and Timothy doulos. Now, remember, we've talked about it before, even though Bond servants were a reality in the Roman Empire. There is no such word in the Greek. It is doulos. It means slave. It doesn't mean someone who has hired themselves out to pay off a debt or any of the other things that a bond servant means and implies. And there were uh, millions of them uh, during the Roman Empire days. But Paul introduces himself and Timothy as doulos, as slaves. And then he introduces the recipients of the letters, as holy ones, bishops, and deacons. He's paying them great respect. And I think part of that is out of his love and the activities that took place there in that church. Now this is distinct because Paul introduced himself in Romans one to the church there as a bondservant, as a doulos of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Then the church in Corinth, he introduced himself as called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and his secretary Sosthenes, our brother, is mentioned. Then to Galatians, Paul says, I am an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And then he introduces himself to the church of Thessaloniki in 1 Thessalonians 1.1 as Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a reason for noting Paul's distinction in introduction, because it was specific to the audience he was writing to. In Rome, where slavery was common, and they were viewed as a certain segment or strata of society, Paul introduced himself as an apostle of Jesus, a slave of Jesus. In Corinth, Galatia, and Ephesus and Colossa, the church was struggling. There was infighting. They were trying to figure out this whole church leadership thing as well as just basic instruction to uh, uh, obedience to apostolic doctrines. So Paul introduced himself as an authority, as a God-placed apostle uh, within the church. And he wrote to Galatia, who was questioning Paul's apostleship. He said, hey, no man appointed me to be an apostle I was appointed by Jesus himself. And then the church at Thessaloniki had some people come in from the outside. And there was confusion that was brewing in the church. And Paul approached them not from a position of authority, not from the position of a slave, but he wrote to them as a friend, just a a conversation uh, that he would have trying to uh, instruct somebody in the errors that were creeping in to the Thessalonian thinking. Now here, Paul to a city where he had been beaten and imprisoned and his feet placed in stocks. And remember, when they put your feet in stocks, they spread your feet out as far as possible without tearing you in half to uh, maximize the pain and discomfort. And that's what Paul had experienced. And Paul introduces he and Timothy as slaves of Christ and then introduces uh, or addresses rather the recipients as holy ones, bishops, and deacons. Now I wanted to pause on this because it makes the point that Paul did not let what happened to him in Philippi damage how he viewed the church or how he served the Lord. It didn't impact his behavior nor did it change his attitude. And in Romans 6.22 we're told, but now having been set free from sin and having become what? Slaves doulos of God. You have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Between the moment of salvation until everlasting life, we are slaves of God. And we'll talk more about that as we go this morning. Now, though Paul planted the church there, though Paul was in a position of divine authority over the church there, though Paul was an apostle, Paul identified himself as a slave of Christ. And what happened to him there in the past was not going to impact him going forward. Now, here's, I think, our first observation in becoming overcomers. Listen this morning. No matter our position in life, we are all servants of Christ. No matter our position in life, we are all servants of Christ. And Paul opened each of his letters to the groups that we read before with what was necessary for the recipients. But he never got away from the fact that he was, and the recipients were, servants of the Most High God. And that grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, if you remember, Ephesians says, shows no partiality to human positions. Be someone a slave or a master, everyone is a slave of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, Jesus himself said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, people are going to be either for you or against you, just like they were with Jesus. Now, we also have to remember what Peter said. We've quoted this. I couldn't even guess how many times over the years. But what Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, Peter is saying, hey, listen, uh, this isn't all easy breezy until we get to heaven. There's trouble on the way. There's trouble along the way. And we're going to encounter things that are painful in life. And again, Peter, being another man of position within the church, did not see his position within the church as a right to escape persecution but rather he rejoiced that he could partake of Christ's sufferings. How are we going to get to that place? That when we suffer, when we are abused, when our rights are violated, how are we going to continue to rejoice in the things we are suffering today? Well, we have to become overcomers. We have to view things the way Paul did. We have to remember that no matter our position in life, no matter our circumstances, we are servants of God. We are his slaves and he is our master. And we need to pause and make a distinction here that not all suffering is suffering for Christ's sake. Some suffering is from being a jerk. Right? Now there's still jerks out there today. Yeah, some of them come to church. Other churches, of course. But it happens, right? Some suffering is just from living in a fallen, evil, and sinful world. And we bear some of the sufferings of the consequences of the fall all the way back in in the garden. But as servants of Christ, we have to keep in mind what Peter said in 4.1 of his first letter. Therefore, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There he's talking about uh, dying, basically, for your testimony for Jesus. And that ends the battle with sin uh, in your old flesh nature and the newness of life. But he's saying, listen, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. So you've got to expect it. You have to arm yourself with that kind of thinking that trouble is going to come your way. Persecutions are going to come your way. And I love how uh, active the congregation gets when you talk about tribulation and persecution and suffering. And, and I know you guys are super excited this morning. <laughs> Peter's saying, you know what? Jesus suffered. We're going to suffer too, just because we're his servants. And one of the commentators said that the sufferings and persecutions for Christ's sake are like Christian jewelry. They're what adorns the Christian. And he went on to give the example of a man whose name I didn't recognize. It wasn't somebody from Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was just kind of a personal story that was shared with him about a man who had a common experience uh, that we read about in books like Fox's Book of Martyrs. And he said there was a man who was being tied to the stake. And his executioners, who had been assigned with the task of putting the uh, flame to the wood that would take this man's life, begged him, like with Polycarp, begged him to recant his faith, which he would not do. And the commentator said, this man was so adorned with the gold and the diamonds of suffering that the executioners of, of him could see the beauty of Christ on him and wanted this man to live. It made me think of Daniel. Remember what happened with Daniel? Daniel. The satraps and governors who were always trying to trap him because he was favored by uh, every king he sat under. And they were always elevating him to positions of power. And at that time, he was over a thousand of the king's lords. And they said, you know what? This guy never does anything wrong morally. So if we're going to trap him, we're going to have to trap him by his religion. So the satraps and governors talked the king into signing a decree that said Nobody can pray to anyone except the king for 30 days. And now when Daniel knew the decree had been signed, he went home that same afternoon, threw his windows open towards Jerusalem, as was his custom since his early days. And he prayed three times, just like he always had, knowing it was going to get him in trouble. Where did he land? Daniel 6, in the lion's den. And my favorite part about this story is, who couldn't sleep that night? The king who put him there. King Darius did not eat any food. He did not send for musicians. He was up all night and he was the first to the mouth of the lion's den when the, uh, down in the pit in the ground. And he was early in the morning to the pit saying, Daniel, has your God delivered you, whom you serve, delivered you? Well, he did. And that's exactly what this author was trying to describe. When we meet our sufferings with trust and joy, and embrace what life has brought our way without getting robbed of the joy of our salvation. It's like jewelry in the eyes of the world. It glistens in their eyes and they recognize they have something. You have something I don't have. And I think we all recognize when you are a servant, you're going to get treated like one. Right? But not by our master. Our master sees us as his friend and co-heirs. But he is going to give us assignments. He is going to give us tasks, but he's going to empower us to do them and reward us for doing them in his strength. That's one of the things that just blows my mind. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And then Paul would later write in this very epistle, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can do nothing without Christ, so Christ gives you strength, and then he rewards you for what he does through you. Isn't that amazing? It's called the grace of God. Now, the first step to becoming an overcomer is to recognize we are slaves of Christ No matter our position in life or the church, we're all slaves of God. We all have the same master. He was despised and rejected, even by his own people. And sometimes we will be too. In verse 3, Paul moves from his opening greeting and blessing to his prayer for this church that he loves so dearly. He thanks the Lord as he remembered them. And his prayers, he says, are filled with joy because of how the church has been a faithful friend since he planted it. He adds then that he's confident that God has more for them and will do more through them even up until the day of Jesus Christ. Have I mentioned Jesus is coming, sir? The day of Christ is at hand. Amen? Amen? Now he says, listen, because of our relationship, it's fitting. It's right for me to feel this way. It's right for me to talk this way about this wonderful small church. He has them in his heart, and his love and affection for them wasn't minimized by the chains he experienced even at that moment. And Romans 15, 24-26, we're told about this missionary trip, "...whenever I journey to Spain, uh, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey," Paul talking to the Romans, "...and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints." For it pleased those uh, from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Those from Macedonia was the church of Philippi. The church of Philippi said this is on Paul's heart, this is on our heart. And if this is what Paul thinks we ought to do, that's what we're going to do. And this is a type of relationship that they have. And Paul, in this great love for this uh, city and for the people of this church, he puts it on full display in chapter 2 when we arrive there uh, sometime mid 2022, I guess. Paul talks about a man named Epaphroditus. And he explains to them why, when they had sent Epaphroditus to Rome with a gift for Paul, why Paul sent him back so quickly. And he explains this, and this displays his great love and relationship with his church in 227 to 30. For he says he, Aphroditus, was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, it had been even more sorrowful if Epaphroditus would have died than him just being in a Roman prison or uh, house arrest. Therefore, I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold these men in esteem, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his own life to supply what was lacking in your service, toward me. In other words, you guys sent Epaphroditus to me in Rome and the journey almost killed him. So I want to send him right back to you because I know you're worried about him. This is Paul. This is why Paul would say to esteem others greater than ourselves. He had a burden for the poor saints in Jerusalem and the church at Philippi did too. Paul loved the holy ones at Philippi and the holy ones at Philippi loved him too. And they enjoyed a special koinonia or a fellowship from the early days of the church until now. And Paul was so concerned about their concern that he sent someone back quickly that he would have loved to enjoy a longer time of fellowship with. Somebody from home. Somebody from a church that he had planted. And he said, you guys were worried because he's sick, so I'm sending him back. As I said in our intro, some label Philippians as the epistle of joy. And I'll remind us all that joy makes for a wonderful acronym that is a model for Christian living. And if we just live our lives Jesus, others, you, we're going to have a joy-filled life. Yeah. Jesus first, others next. Put ourselves last is what Paul is saying. And there we see that is what Paul is doing. Because of his concern for this church that he loved, he sent this man back after they sent a gift through him as the courier, a trip that almost killed him. Now in Philippians 2, 1-4, we're also going to find, Paul writes, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. We'll see why this is important in a moment. So pack that away in your mind. Paul said at the end of chapter one, it was granted to them... To believe in Christ. And as believers in Christ it was granted to them. To suffer for Christ. And he's saying. In this season of suffering. Remember to take care of each other. The same way you have taken care of me. Listen we're in a season of suffering. Things are different than they've ever been for us here in America. We've not experienced what the church has experienced all around the world. For centuries. It's coming here now. Persecution is coming here now. You could lose your job. You could lose your life soon in these United States of America for being a Christian. Why? Because Christianity is an exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. And you can't go to heaven apart from him. And that doesn't fall in line with the egalitarian thinking of the world. And there are many in our places of leadership in our country that are turning against the church. And we are seeing persecution on the rise it's at least once a week I get a an email from somebody or a mention on social media from somebody about a pastor being arrested in Canada and it's always tagged with the same thing be careful it's headed your way. It's already happening on our northern in our northern neighbors borders and it's coming here as well. We are in a season of suffering And therefore, that's why Paul is saying what he said in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, to let nothing be done through selfish ambition, but have a lowly mind esteeming others better than yourselves. Look out for each other. Care for one another. Now listen, this brings us to our second tool or facet of becoming an overcomer. And that is, listen, do what's right, no matter how you've been wronged. Do what's right, no matter how you've been wronged. Was Paul wronged in Philippi? No, yeah, no. Did he do what's right? Yeah. Now listen, don't let your minds wander off in thinking this is something that I'm not meaning. There were men who had an official position in Roman colonies. They were known as lictors. You ever hear the phrase, somebody getting their licks in? That dates all the way back to the Roman Empire. A lictor was one who would beat your back. He was an executioner, one who carried out, or uh, they executed sentence on violators, of the Roman law in form of a beating. And it was Lictors who beat Paul and Silas. It was a Roman jailer who spread the legs to the point of excruciating pain and put their feet in stocks. And let me ask you a question this morning. Were Paul and Silas falsely accused? Yes. Were Paul Was Paul in particular beaten in violation of Roman law? Yes, he was. It was against the law to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. Paul had no trial. They just said, they're causing trouble in the city. These guys are troublemakers. Beat them, throw them in the jail, and put their feet in stocks. Paul protested the next day, stating that he was a Roman citizen, posing the question, it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen? And they said, would you guys mind leaving town? Now, so, Paul and Silas were falsely accused. Paul was beaten in violation of Roman law. The Philippian jailer was complicit in their mistreatment. All those things are true, right? But was God still worthy of praise? Yeah. So what were they doing at midnight? What was the right thing to do? What was the right thing to do with a beaten back at feet and stocks? Complain about the jailer? Call him names? How dare you treat us this way? What were they doing? They were praising God. They were worshiping God with beaten backs and excruciating pain. This is why he would write to the Church of Thessaloniki in 1 Thessalonians 5:16 to 18, "Rejoice when things are really good." What do you say? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Why? It's the will of God. It's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Listen, you can thank God for your salvation while not being thankful for your circumstances. You can thank God for your salvation while not being thankful for your treatment. And I'm quite sure Paul was not thankful for the pain, but I'm quite sure Paul was thankful through the pain. And if I can be candid for a moment, I think we all need to recognize, and probably do, that there are times where people, including Christians, who have wronged you, and they're never going to do the right thing. They're never going to make it right. I, I know this is true because I've experienced this, even recently. They do the wrong thing and they're never going to make it right. So, what do I do? I quit worshiping God and pout. No, we keep praising His name. We keep rejoicing. And listen, sometimes people who by all rights should be the quickest to do what's right, very often never do. But listen, none of that changes the worthiness of God. And even when we've got, I love what Pastor Bryce said to me. I've never forgotten it. He said this to me even long before. Uh, they went to South Africa for nine years. He was describing an encounter actually at the door of the church and said, Yeah, I got a chocolate dagger this morning. Chocolate dagger? What's that? Well, somebody's saying something sweet that's actually a knife in the back. And uh, I've heard uh, some chocolate daggers, now that I can identify them, they happen, right? It happens. But listen, Paul did not let the wrong that happened to him in Philippi shape his relationship with the church there. You know why? Because that would be like blaming the whole church for what one Christian has done. And that happens all the time. Have you heard that before? I'm not going to church because somebody at the church did this. Well, you weren't going to church for that person in the first place. You're going to church to worship God. It's like that old story, you know, where the... um, guy comes up to the pastor at the door and says pastor uh, I need to talk to you and he says oh gosh you look like troubled what's going on he said well i'm moving on he said you're moving on you've been here forever what what's going on and uh, he said well it's the worship it just doesn't move me and the pastor said oh gosh i didn't know it was for you we have all these ridiculous things that happen within the church that ought not to be happening. Amen? And listen, being an overcomer means doing what's right even when you've been wronged. And what's right is praising God. What's right is worshiping God. What's right is living with a life filled with joy. Even when you can look back and say, man, I got beat up there. Man, I remember those stocks. That hurt. That was painful. That was excruciating. But you know what, man? When I started praising God from the valley, things started to happen. The building started to shake. Change started to fall off. And listen, vengeance is the Lord's He will repay. Right? And I'll tell you one thing. I have never, uh, ever, and will never, say to the Lord, I want justice. No, I'll take mercy. I'll take grace. And God's going to deal with situations, and He takes a lot longer than I like sometimes. Are you there? He takes a lot longer than we like sometimes. But nothing gets by Him. He sees it all. And that's why Paul would say in 12.18 of Romans, if it is possible, meaning it's not always, if it is possible, as much as depends on who? You. Live peaceably with all men. Now, we can't control other people's actions, but we have 100% control over our own. And there are no circumstances, listen this morning, there are no circumstances that we will ever endure that reduce God's worthiness of being praised or obeyed or believed. There's no such circumstance. And lastly, in verse 9, Paul turns to intercession. He prays that their love may abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. Now that's kind of an odd packaging of what he's praying. And when we uh, mentioned chapter 2, the reason Paul was talking about esteeming others better than themselves is because there is a disunity that was creeping into the church. And Paul was saying, fight it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't let division creep into the church. And the church today is being exploited and divided by Satan like never before in history. I mean, look at the things going on in the church. I told you a few weeks ago, we've had people leave this church because I didn't come out strong enough against the jab. And we've had people leave this church because I didn't promote the jab. It's kind of like what we're doing right now. If I asked some of you if it's too cold, half of you would raise your hand. (laughs) If I asked some of you if it was just right, half of you would raise your hand. It's a win-win or a lose-lose, however you want to look at it. But listen, we cannot let the devil divide us. And that's what Paul is saying. And how do you do that? He says you do that by approving the things that are excellent. And the word approve means to recognize the genuine. And then he admonishes him to be sincere. That means testing what's genuine, to find out if it is. And to be without offense in these areas, until the day of Jesus Christ. And then he prays that they be filled with the fruits of righteousness by Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. All these things, as Paul simply saying, I pray that what you believe would become visibly evident to all who encounter you. And that it would impact how you live your lives and interact with each other. And the reason this was important to Paul and incorporated into this intercession for them is is that the glory and praise of God are the end result of the fruits of righteousness. Fruits meaning visible manifestations of what God has done in us. And in the context of our time and the fact that Paul basically overlooked something that was a big negative in his life and didn't let it impact or influence him and his relationship with this beloved church and certainly not with the Lord, a myriad of things came to my mind in preparation, especially yesterday and I just want to remind you of two things we've talked about before and then we'll wrap it up. First of all, listen this morning. God's glory is more important than our comfort. Amen. God's glory is more important than our comfort. The second thing is this. Doing right is more important than being right. Doing right is more important than being right. Now, obviously I'm talking about a non-essential issue, personality things and all those that happen within the church. We are going to suffer for His name's sake. And glory should be brought to him through our sufferings. And when interpersonal relationships become strained or personalities uh, clash within the church, does that ever happen? Are there some sandpaper saints? Oh, yeah. yeah, sure there are. Uh, elsewhere. Right? Do theological issues that are open to interpretation arise in the church? Are they being used to divide the church today? Listen, the divided house will not stand. And here's our last takeaway for the day. And it's probably the most simplistic point uh, we've ever had and the many we've had over the years. But it's also, I believe, the most important thing to remember if you want to become an overcomer. And it's just this. You ready for this? Remember why we're here. It's just that simple. Remember why we're here. We've all heard the importance of keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing for the church is bringing God glory. That's the main thing. That's why Jesus said in the opening phrases of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, that when they observe your good good works, they'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because that is the purpose of our existence, to bring God glory. Even when we're adorned with the jewelry of suffering and going through things we'd rather avoid. And listen this morning. Giving God glory and bringing God glory are two different things, even though the end result is the same. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 14 to 15, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now listen close. On their part, he is blasphemed. Blaspheme means to vilify. There are people who vilify God. But on your part, he's what? He's glorified. This is bringing God glory. Doesn't blessed mean oh how happy? Peter says, listen, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, oh how happy are you? Can anybody raise their hand? That's how we ought to approach these things. And he does say, listen, you got to remember the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. They're blaspheming him. But you are bringing him glory. And listen, if we were re- remember this one thing, then we're a step closer to bringing him glory, even in the hard things. And those are the hardest times to bring him glory. We can give him glory at any time, right? Bless the Lord at all times. The fruit of our lips, the sacrifice of praise. We can sing him glory. We can speak glory to his name. Well, listen, when we combine these actions with the suffering that Paul is talking about here, that's when we're bringing glory. That's when we're not praising him in the midst of the congregation. That's when people who don't know him are seeing the beauty of him and what he does in our own lives. Listen, Paul was singing hymns at midnight with his back beaten with rods and his feet in stalks. And his praise was so beautiful to the Lord, the Lord shook the earth in response to it. I want some of that. Don't you? Well, you can't circumvent the beating in the stocks to get there. And thankfully, we're not there yet here in these United States of America. And I hope the Lord tells that angel, blast that trumpet going to get my people before we get there. Don't you? There's nothing wrong with that. Well, listen, whatever comes our way, we cannot let it impact our joy, nor can we allow it to diminish giving God glory. Paul in stocks was an overcomer. Paul in chains was an overcomer. Paul, after being pelted with rocks and left for dead in Lystra, was an overcomer. You know what he did? Because of his preaching, he was stoned, they believed, to death. So, when they went to collect his body, he got up and they went back in the city and started preaching again. I'm thinking Paul was an overcomer. Paul spent a day and night in the deep and he was an overcomer. He was ostracized by his family and his own people. He was an overcomer. And listen, we're on our way this morning through the Avenue of the Giants and I pray that the end result of our time and journey is that we become overcomers. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful once again for your word this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for these things that uh, Paul has put on display for us. Thank you for his great love for uh, the church collectively and how, Lord, I think in particular that we recognize that he loved this church like he loved his own countrymen. And his great burden for the Jewish people, Lord, is uh, seen here and made visible through of this Macedonian church and his love and affection for them, even in spite of all he had encountered his first time there. And Lord, I, I pray for all of us that in this season that, that we're all newbies to here in these United States, that we would not fall prey uh, to despair or silence and that the fruit of our righteousness would be maintained, Lord, through our attitude and actions uh, in this very unique season for us as, a, as the American church. And Lord, we thank you that uh, Paul did use his citizenship to his advantage twice. Uh, once to uh, avoid what he could have further endured here in Philippi, and second to uh, eliminate the, the possibility of immediate death as he appealed to Rome and Caesar to be tried there. So, Lord, we, we recognize that you've given us these abilities and rights, but, Lord, uh, we don't want to exalt those rights above our responsibility to bring you glory either. So, Lord, I pray as we experience new things, and, Lord, I pray especially in, in the betrayals that we've all experienced and uh, the chocolate daggers that have come our way and, Lord, the disputes and the name-calling that goes on uh, between Christians that should not be so. And Lord, that we would never let anything impact or diminish our bringing you glory and our praise for you. So Lord, as we continue this journey, we ask your hand be upon us. And Lord, as we go out into the highways and the byways this week, I pray that we preach Christ and him crucified. I pray especially that people will come to know you through these dear saints of yours, bought with your blood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.